Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Ohio Outdoors Podcast. I feel oh, like man, you got a super sultry radio voice today. Super Jesus. radio voice. No. What's to you, man? What's up, big man? I haven't seen you in a while. What's up? God, man, it feels like forever. I'm sure our listeners are like, oh, God, this guy's back yelling at us. Yeah, the right. They're like, good. We don't have to listen to just Andrew again. But oh, God. So. so if you're still listening, thank you. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Um, where you been? What have you been doing, man? Gosh, dude, traveling all over the freaking country, I feel like. It's been it's been a great spring. Work has been really, uh, really interesting, really impactful. A lot of just really good uh, things coming out of that. You're going to see a ton of really um, just the craziest National Wild Turkey Federation initiative, 10-year initiative coming out. Uh, it's going to focus. We're out, we're out of it, thankfully. Um, it's going to focus on the southeast. And it's all about habitat and research and brood. I mean, it's just, dude, it's going to be, it's going to be a really, really good initiative. I'm looking for, keep, keep, keep your, your eyes out, keep your eyes peeled for that big initiative coming. So I'm excited about that, but man, I've just been shot my bow today. You did picture of Turkey season is officially over in my mind and my heart transitioning into shooting a couple of critters this year. You did, uh, and the ants that reside in your deer target are oh were not gosh, happy. How crazy was that? That dude? was insane. I haven't shot that that so that target I've just left. It's like one of those big foam block targets. It's been in my yard since I put it out there last summer, and I've not moved it at all. And <laughs> from where I was shooting those broadheads in it, it kind of kind of chewed it up. And I shot a couple arrows in that thing, and there were freaking ants everywhere there's hundreds of ants on that thing coming out of the foam target it was crazy so it's nuts but you man what have you been up to have fun <sighs> we're getting there man spring is get, get, get a little island time this year or this weekend yes yeah, so that was fun ran up to put in bay so uh not fishing this time more of a getaway weekend it was fun uh some friends oh, from the gym and stuff like that but got my my patio project is about done so that is a major relief off of my shoulders, um, and I can now start focusing in on getting ready for deer season because um, I've been neglecting that. I did shoot the bow the other day briefly with the kids, um, but not like I should be. Um, I think the most exciting news I have is that I have my first uh, fawn dropped on the, my camera, so that's that was exciting. I always like to see that every year. And, um, uh, you know, I don't usually have big bucks running around, but I got, I don't, it's not a big buck, but he's, he got up close and personal with the camera the other, I'll have to send you that picture, uh, up close and the personal with the camera the other day. So you got to see that his nubs are coming out nicely. I have no, yeah, I, awesome. I don't think he's that old, but it'll be, uh, be fun to watch him. You, you had, you had a really good deer on camera at the end of the hunting season last year. After you had already killed your buck, your one buck, yeah, that happens every year. Man, he was a he was a good deer. Right. I hope he's still there for you. Yeah, I'm hoping. I didn't uh, find any sheds. I think I know which one you're talking about, but the um, didn't find any of those sheds. So I don't know. We'll yeah. see. But anyway, you know, I, so I I brought I brought this. I I, I did the uh, uncensored podcast from our from our buddies at Go Wild. Check their podcast out. Check their website out. Time to go wild. Com social media app. Join, you get 10 bucks free. They got some really cool stuff on there. If you are land managing this year for whitetail deer, Andrew, they got all sorts of stuff for you. Obviously, everything that a person could want to hunt whitetail deer uh, in the great state of Ohio uh, and, and beyond. It's time to go wild.com. Click on the shop tab. Find us, O2 Podcast, on there. Find me, Paul Campbell. 
but their podcast is great. And I was on it the other day. Um, so I don't think I told you the story. I'll send you a picture. I'll put it on go wild. But when I was in New York hunting and I was in um, just the prettiest country that I've ever hunted turkeys in. And you don't associate New York with awesome turkey hunting. Dude, it was freaking crazy. But I was I was roosting birds the night before. I was walking back to my truck and there's this there's this road. It wasn't um it was busy, but it wasn't like nonstop traffic, right? But there there are cars coming. And I'm walking up to my car and I and I see something laying in the middle of the road. And I talked about the story on Go Wild. And I know I'm gonna get some hate for it, but I, I'm I'm I I just I, I just want to see what you would do and what anyone would do. So I get up to my car and I see something in the middle of the road, like in like in the way of danger, right? Like in just the worst possible spot. And it's a little tiny fawn. And it is like a bloody tiny little fawn, like super fresh, right? I mean, like this dude was still kind of grimy. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, you are in the wrong spot, my friend. And so I just keep walking. I walk past it. And I'm like, dude, I can't leave this thing here. Like a, a car came by and like, and it's right over a hill. And I'm like, dude, I got to, I, I just, I, I know I, you're not supposed to touch fawns, Andrew, but I picked this stupid deer up and I set, I take him the six feet off of the road and I set him on the, on the, on the, on the, on the edge of the road in the direction that he's pointed. I'm just like, you dumbass, I'm going to get you off this road. And then I walk away. I just turn around. I walk away. And I hear, wah, wah. I'm like, oh, God, what? I turn around. This thing had taken off and he gotten wedged in between two little saplings and had his neck stuck. And I'm just like, oh, God, dude, I got to touch this deer again. So I go back. I take him out of the of the branches. I just set him down. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm trying to like to touch this thing like as little as possible. I want to help him out. And I start walking. And he takes off and runs in front of me and his mom starts kicking. Like I, I finally hear her and he, and he, like, I just see him like kind of connect and take off. I'm like, ah, oh, perfect. It all worked out. And I know that you're not supposed to touch deer. I'm not going to touch them, but I'm like, dude, this thing's going to get smushed. If I don't move this deer, like it is, it is. Cause there's, there's enough cars there that he, like, he's got to get off the road right now. That deer's like, mom, mom, Sasquatch <laughs> just pulled me out of the middle of the road. Yeah. <laughs> Paul. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I've never, I've literally never picked up a, a like a, 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 a wild animal like that. I mean, it was, it was, I'm not going to say it. it was, it was pretty cool. I don't recommend doing it. And like I said, if it would have been on the side of the road or in a field, I'm, I'm walking right by that. That I'm not even going to, not even going to mess with it. I, but. Fi- I figured you're going to tell me that you brought it home and you're trying to get your own version of Dolly so that you can, oh, have, God, no, have a random deer that shows up at your house every other day, ask to get petted. <laughs> Oh Dolly. oh Dolly! No, did she? Did you hear about the people that like found the the elk calf? I did not. And you know, so they find an elk calf. A couple couple hikers, and they uh they pick this elk calf up, Andrew, and they put it in their car, and they drive to a, the local police station to report that they found this elk calf in Yellowstone. They took it out of Yellowstone. Took it to the police station. Mm. Dumb. That's Bro- what that is. Brilliant. Man. That's dumb. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, I didn't do that. I took a picture of it. I'm not going to lie. I was just like, eh, because I mean, how often do you get to do that? Uh, but that was it. So it kind of reminds oh, me, you- the elk calf reminds me. Um, Do you ever watch a show, Robin Big? We're getting off topic here. Oh, man. What's Clay? What's Clay Newcomb say? Buddy, we're on the trail of a rabbit right now. Let's sure. chase that rabbit. Yes, I have seen the show, Robin Big. Do you remember the one where they buy the mini horse and they put it in the back of their Escalade to drive it home and it's like crapping all over the place and eating the seats no. and everything else? No, that's what no, the, but that's I know what, what I'm watching on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the only show I ever remember from that, but anywho. Yeah, that's good. So MidwestGunWorks.com, they got their gun finder on there. So if you are getting uh, you're getting geared up for shooting your AR-15 this summer, Andrew, that is the place to go. All of your parts for the gun enthusiast, for the hunter, thermals, they got optics, all sorts of stuff. MidwestGunWorks.com, enter the code OhioOutdoors5, save yourself 5% on every order. There you go. There you go. Um, they got Half-Rack.com, Half-Rack. Our buddies over there. We had Josh on a few weeks ago. Um, they're still putting out. Uh, I like that guy. I'm bummed I missed that episode. Uh, we'll have him again. So and TJ, that whole crew, good people, uh, great products there. And uh, that's it. What is it? Ohio Outdoors 15. Mm-hmm. Ohio Outdoors 15. Save yourself 15 percent. 
Meatloaf. I got the wild the wildcat case for the bow. I got that thing sitting on the ground over here. Awesome. If you want a soft side case, that thing is legit. There you go. And the boon sling, every time we talk, I mean, I freaking love that gunsling. It's the best gunsling I've ever had. Beautiful. Love it. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, who else we got? We got Go Wild. Uh, we talked about them. X-Vision. X-Vision. Buddies. X-Vision. We need to get back out, buddy. Uh, I'm ready to go, man. I'm ready to kill something. I'm the one that's Some been drag- coyote. dragging my feet because I've just been... I can't get out of the way of life right now, but X-Vision... Well, I mean, you... you- you invited me on a couple of coyote hunts with the X Vision stuff, and I'm like, dude, I've been gone for like eight days straight hunting turkeys. I can't, I can't leave Andrew. <laughs> soon, my friend. Soon, but yeah, I ran it by my wife once, and she's like, no, not happening. Get out of here. Funny. What are you, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Oh no, XVisionOptics.com. I know they've got some stuff on Go Wild as well. Um, get on there and check those guys out. Um, supporters of the show. And First Light, finally, thanks to our guys over at First Light um, for their support. And they've got their Father's Day guide on there now. So I guess that day is coming up here soon. And uh, I don't know, man, those guide light shorts, those are my favorite for the summer. So I'll leave it at that. But uh, let's see. News around the state, Paul. we got a couple things here. So. Uh, remember June 17th and 18th is, uh, the fish for free across Ohio, uh, Ohio's annual fi- free fishing days on Saturday and Sunday, June 17th and 18th provide all Ohio residents the chance to cast a line at hundreds of public fishing locations without the need for a license. So maybe that'd be a good chance to get out there and take a look at that. Make sure you get on ODNR's website, get all the details for that. Um, let's see. So ODNR urges caution due to dry conditions. And I know as we sit here and it was what a high about 65 today, got freaking cold again. Um, crazy. It was wild, but, uh, don't, I mean, we're going to get some more rain this week, but be careful if you're burning stuff or having campfires, anything like that, because it did get real dry there. I think we went about three weeks without any, Measurable yeah, precipitation. That, that's wild. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Wild, so. um, Keep it. If if you are burning, I don't know if we've got burn bans on. So check your local regulations. But it, uh, it get real weird and get real Canadian here real quick. You know. <laughs> so I hate to be offensive, but man, it's just th- those those fires up there are insane. I don't know if you've been watching some of the videos that are, that are coming out. Well, hell, um, man, you could, couldn't see it, for a couple of days. Uh, see, I was in Tennessee and Kentucky when when all of that rolled through, so we we had a little tiny bit of it, um, but man, just why I was talking to some of my friends in in New York and they're like, dude, it's insane. Like I've never seen anything like it. It was weird. It was real hazy and yeah. eerie, very eerie feeling. So, um, last thing here, kayaking for all at Wingfoot Lake State Park, uh, ODNR and the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company unveiled a new. ADA compliant accessible kayak launch at Wingfoot Lake State Park. So this launch was created through a $62,000 donation from Goodyear. Thank you um, to the folks at Goodyear for their help on that. It'll be fun for everybody to get out there. Very cool. Yeah. So um, let's see, Paul. I don't know that we've got a whole lot of other news. Um, I don't think so. What is... We had a really cool episode tonight, today, whenever, whenever you're listening to this. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, so the, the gentleman that we interviewed, is, his name is Kendrick Chidek, and he is a photographer, conservationist. Um, he's got Hunter, a, angler, Hunter angler. Yeah, he's got some great uh, stories and a really cool background and, and some opportunities that he took advantage of. In you know younger days that you know most people don't travel to New Zealand for studying and different things, and now he really sees the woods from from almost a different angle um, or the water. But it's it's a it's a fun talk. I really enjoyed it. I yeah. wasn't I wasn't yeah, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't quite sure what what to expect. But after you got going, man, it was like this is this is good. So yeah, yeah, really enjoyable. So so Kendrick, thank you for for your time. Uh, thanks for 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 reaching out, man. Love to have you on again. So, yeah, check out his his Substack. Check out his website. Just a ton of talent with him. So, 
and we are getting closer to archery hike, which is July 7th, 8th, and 9th, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We had Justin on last week to talk about that. If you want any more information, go back to that episode and check that out, or archeryhike.com. And then, Paul, remind me of the BHA event. I know it's in our calendar. Muster in the Marsh. Uh, it's in, and in, in to our... Uh, to our listeners that uh, <laughs> that messaged you to correct, it's Conningot. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to pronounce it. July twenty first to the twenty third, Mushroom the Marsh BHA's biggest event of the year uh, in Conningot. You can visit um, backcountryhunters.org for more information. We will be there. We're we'll doing a live podcast with uh, with, the, with the folks from Meat Eater, doing some other uh, entertainment, if you will. We'll be there for the entire trip. So. Uh, come check it out. Uh, it's Cover Bridge Outfitters. You can buy tickets online. Uh, it's 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 going to be a pretty good event. Like this this is there's a lot of people that go there. On site camping, live music, campfire stories. You got food trucks, all sorts of wine, um, workshops. Just really cool. I've done a couple of those BHA events months. They're pretty cool, man. Some of the stuff you get to make up there. So you'll like it. Awesome. Awesome. Backcountryhunters.org. Awesome. Come a member today. Absolutely. Doing good work, man. So, all right, and you can find us on uh, Instagram. It's the podcast website, the podcast.com. Go wild! Uh, of course, we're over there. O2 podcast. Paul and I are both on uh, the platforms as well. But yeah, reach out if you get a chance. Throw us a, a review on online, and then uh, yeah, we'll go from there, man. We uh, appreciate everybody listening, and and hopefully you enjoy this week. We'll we'll be back next week. Talk to you again. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Ohio Outdoors Podcast, the O2 Podcast. Paul, we're back, Paul. It's been a while since we've been on, on the call together. And yeah. uh, tonight so, we, we are joined with Kendrick Chiddock. Is that how you say it? Uh, Chiddock, yeah. Chittick. Close enough. I should have I tested that before we started oh, recording. Good. So. Kendrick, thanks for thanks for coming on, man. And uh, Andrew, yes, it's been it's been a while. Kendrick, Kendrick, I travel a ton for work, and I I've missed man like the last like three episodes. So I'm sure people needed a break from my my shenanigans anyway. Talking about turkeys all the time. So up oh, there, there it is. The turkey. Yeah, here we go. We're Tur- gonna get it in. Kendrick kind of broke he broke the ice as soon as he hopped on. He talked about the turkey fans. So we're safe. We're in safe space, right? Kendrick, I opened the door for you. There you go, man. <laughs> Well, Kendrick, tell tell the uh, tell listeners just uh, who you are, man. Where where you're from, and and uh, what you got going on? You got some really cool things that you've been looks like you've been working on. You got it, man. Um, so I'm based outside of Cleveland, Ohio, um, and the thing that gets me outside the most is fishing Steelhead Alley. Um, that goes all the way back to you know growing up fishing just for bluegill and bass in the area and into Canada, and then uh, I went to college down in Virginia at Roanoke College. So that's actually where I learned how to fly fish. Um, And then graduate school down in New Zealand is where I became an angler. Um, Not much of a student, but an angler anyway. Uh, So when I got back um, to the States and was working, um, I had a a longtime friend teach me how to hunt and I taught him how to fly fish and uh, just kind of worked out. So then that was really opening the doors for a lot of things uh, for me. So I've had a career in conservation and now I'm focusing full time in photography and writing. Um, and a lot of that photography focuses in the sporting world. So the type of photographer that I actually have the most in common with is a wedding photographer, uh, except that I'm doing that for hunting and fishing outings. Um, I felt like there's a ton of great commercial photographers uh, in the hunting and fishing world but that this kind of a, a niche was a little different. Um, so I've really been, been pursuing it. So that's pretty, that's pretty neat. That's, I've, I would have never thought of that, but that's, yeah. That's, I mean, if you're going on, you know, the hunt of a lifetime, it'd be cool to capture those, those memories, I guess, for sure. Yeah, and especially considering some of the cost of those big hunts and fishing outings too. Um, as long as you can sort out the logistics, it's uh, it can be reasonable for a, for a hunter or angler in the right situation. Um, and the other place that it really works is on outings of small groups. Um, you know, if it's a, a special outing with a father, son or daughter or something like that, um, then that's a great, great use for it as well. Um, 
So that, uh, as much as I love the photography, that is one of my loves in addition to my, uh, my family, certainly, um, that means that the rod has not been out as much. So I've been taking the photos instead of catching the fish, but it's all good. Yeah. So you did, you said you went to grad school in New Zealand. Yeah. So when I finished up, um, I did environmental science, uh, when I was in college and coming out of that program, you know, there there was, you could kind of go be a consultant, you could do lab research, um, or you could kind of be an activist. And and none of those things really struck me as something I wanted to do. Um, so my grades were good enough to get me into grad school, but not to get me a scholarship. So when I decided to take on that uh, financial decision on my own, I said, okay, let's open the doors here. Let's find the coolest program in the best place. Um, and this was through a school called Lincoln University outside of Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, so I had six months there doing courses, uh, and then six months in Vienna, Austria, and then back for a year in New Zealand to do my thesis, which was on uh, water policy. Um, but actually, that is kind of the genesis of a lot of my writing. When I was down there, um, I started a blog. So the first day that I arrived, unpacked my bag, and the massive earthquake hit. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or, or remember it, but um, it was the deadliest day at the time in New Zealand's history. The city of Christchurch was essentially wiped out the downtown area. And so that really kind of pushed me to just blog and start writing to my families. And uh, it's kind of interesting looking back, you know, almost 10 years for a while, blogs were out of style. But now through this Substack program, uh, which if you're not familiar, is essentially a professional blog. I don't really know how else to describe it. Um, That's where I do a lot of my photography and writing launch. Um, I do a little fiction work there, too. So um, the things that started back there on the other side of the world are, are now sustaining me here. So the the grad the grad program was environmental science or was it? It was natural resource management. Okay. Where'd you go to school here? Uh, so I went to high school at university school. Uh, okay. Yep. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, that's a that's a pretty incredible trip, you know, um, to go all the way over to New Zealand for grad school. But it was a good time. Good. I mean, you enjoyed. Yeah, it, it was. Um, my kind of main pursuits there were some kayaking and then uh, brown trout fishing and. Uh, I got to tell you, it's a, it's a different world fishing for brown trout when you have to stalk them. You know, you're hiding behind bushes. You're trying not to get the shadow of your line to hit the water. Uh, you're using really long leaders. Um, it's really cool. It's uh, it's definitely a hunting vibe when you're down there. All right. I was just talking with someone recently about about fly fishing that way and how it's 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 like spot and stalking you know, big game or whatever. And it sounds, I mean, it sounds pretty cool. It sounds like a very interesting form of, of, of fishing. So are you big on trout then? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'll fish for anything I can get with a, a fly rod. Um, certainly the steelhead are the most common things in the smallmouth, you know, in the rivers around here. Um, but yeah, I've done a decent amount of, of trout fishing there and, and around. Yeah. Man, I can't remember what kind of trout it was. I should know. I did that in Pennsylvania, the stuff spot and stock thing. Total, okay. totally crazy. Uh, but yeah. we did catch one and it was like this big and I'm sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> wait, we were just crawling around on the ground trying to like hide, you know, to find this perfect little pool for something that's four inches long. I couldn't believe it. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful trout, but it's definitely unique. So yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they're a little bigger down there, but, um, speaking of small trout, you were making me think, um, uh, yesterday, I was just out at uh, Bass Lake Preserve with the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. So I'm involved in uh, what we call Trout Club of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. It's uh, an associated society. It's been around for over 40 years. Um, So we do a lot of um, education programs. Uh, We do trips, you know, one-on-one courses, bring in speakers, host a film tour. Um, But the real thing that keeps that group together is the conservation angle. So we've kind of shifted in the last few years from um giving money to large access projects where it's more kind of a drop in the bucket to more uh, smaller focused maybe scientific projects so that we can understand better native species like smallmouth and brook trout um so we were uh we were actually watching a, a gentleman uh with Jaga Park sample brook trout and uh you know they're only this big they're a few inches long I think that's um, what I I think that's what I was spotting stalking this brook trout it could have been yep yeah. Um, but anyway, it's, it's fascinating. We have, uh, an endemic genetic strain of brook trout in Northeast Ohio here. 
So there's only a few streams where they actually survive. So we have to have all hands on deck to keep them going. And, and hopefully um, one of the things we, the trout club donated to earlier this year was a, a project to actually create a cold water stream connection um, from a stream or from a spring to another stream. So who knows, maybe that'll, that'll work out. That's pretty. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. No, I'm just, I'm trying to figure. So when you say we have an endemic population, run that by me again. What are we trying to accomplish? Like, is it what's killing, what's killing them or what's the, the issue? Yeah. So we have a unique genetic strain that is only here in Northeast Ohio. So let's say, you know, if you go somewhere East, like to Maine or something, they'll have different genetics in their fish. Um, so that unique genetic strain to Ohio is only limited to uh, less than five streams from my last recollection. Um, and so they're very fragile. Um, we have to have cold water streams for brook trout. So if you imagine warm water streams are things where, you know, bass are, are thriving and bluegill and catfish and that kind of a thing. Um, the cold water is typically more spring fed. So at least in this area and really throughout Ohio, um, a lot of streams get way too warm for trout in the summer um, and particularly brook trout. So where we have those streams that provide the habitat, we really want to make sure that we keep them. Um, it's uh, it's a challenge to grow the population. So um, if we can do it, then that'd be great. So you've you did some some research, you did some work with with water policy uh, in your grad school, and and can you can you talk on what's going on in Northeast Ohio with East East Palestine? Is there? I mean, the last reports that I got were earlier in the year. Um, pretty limited information and then just any with anything in the news runs a few cycles and it really just kind of disappears from from all of our our memory but can you can you talk about what's going on up there is there any um any research ongoing is there are you seeing any negative effects in in your part of the state i'd love to talk about it but i'm definitely not the right guy um that's a little a little southeast of me Um, that's probably an hour maybe from here um so that's definitely out of my wheelhouse to to speak about here. But yeah, that, that's unfortunate. Um, a lot of those impacts, they take a long time to get sorted, um, even with human help. Um, and then the funding to help fix those things long term takes even longer. So um, yeah, yeah, hoping they can get it together. Yeah, for sure. Are you up to speed on any of the water quality issues in Western Lake Erie? some of the algae blooms uh, on a on a surface level no yeah. pun intended um you know i think from my perspective anyway there's kind of a double whammy there where there used to be one of the, the continent's largest wetlands right so we have a natural filter ecological uh filter for a lot of water um so the majority of that nearly all of it is gone um and then kind of normal human um both the, the spread of cities and farming and all the runoff, um, all that adds together. So no, I, I can't speak to, to a technical standpoint, but I just know that we have a double whammy there of impact. So in some cases you could might be able to get away with some of the impacts if you still have those wetlands intact, but without the wetlands, it makes it harder. Okay. You didn't know you were going to get drilled on water quality issues, did you? <laughs> no, it, it's all good. I didn't No, No, it's, it's good. Uh, I think Paul and I can, can echo that. Um, from kind of the 10,000 foot level, we have a little bit of an idea, mm-hmm. um, but it's just interesting. And, and the dynamics between humans and, and nature in general, mother nature always wins, but uh, we do our best to try to control it both for the good and the bad, but yeah. So. so what, what, what drove you to, to want to start diving into photography of, of wildlife, uh, you know, kind of put the gun down, put the bow down, put the, put the rod down and, and pick up the camera. What was the driving factor behind that? Yeah. So, I mean, Paul, it was really, um, it started with the writing, you know, when I was doing um, the the blog, so to speak, down in New Zealand, and I was uh, writing these entries, I kind of figured, hey, why don't I submit these to some magazines? And, uh, you know, once in, in that world, once you can get published once, twice, you start to build some confidence and then you realize you can kind of submit to wherever you want. Uh, but I learned pretty early on that if you had photos that accompanied your writing, then uh, you were more likely to get published. Um, they didn't have to go find their own photos or pull from stock photos. Um, so if there was a photo that matched the writing, um, then that was more likely to 
to be taken. Um, so some of that pushed me into it. Um, and then in a, a previous career, I was interacting with hunters and anglers a lot who were donors uh, for a conservation organization. And I was taking them hunting and fishing. And as a service to them, I would take photos of them. So their dog getting the ducks in the early morning, um, catching their first steelhead, uh, their kids' first steelhead, that kind of a thing. Uh, and they just loved receiving those photos. And it kind of became this thing where, wow, I'm loving taking these photos, maybe even more than catching the fish. Um, so to tie that in with with my writing, uh, it really came to fruition in that way. And and looking back, uh, actually, I was just reflecting on this with an old family friend. Um, you know, when I told my parents and my family this a couple of years ago that I was going to leave a, a perfectly wonderful job to pursue this, um, I think my mom found some solace in an old photo album where I had taken photos of, you know, little birds at the feeder or something when I was a little <laughs> kid. And so uh, it's, you know, I've been doing it for a while. I just didn't connect all the dots until recently. Yeah. So when, when, when you started venturing out with just a camera in, in hand, did you, did you see the woods and the streams and the water? Did you just see it differently than, than from like a hunting perspective? Yeah. I, I, um, I want to back up briefly to the hunting perspective because I think that's a really important turning point in my life. Um, you know, when I got back from all these travels earlier in my life, I came home to the woods and became a hunter there. And, you know, when I had left, I almost felt bored and I felt like it was too small. And when I got home and I was paying attention to the tracks and the wind and the draws and all that, um, it, it was as if those blocks of woods that I grew up in, um, you know, grew to to new heights, so to speak. Um, and I think with a camera for me, what I'm fascinated by is the relationship between people and nature. Uh, so at least in my estimation, um, environmental degradation is uh, a spiritual separation. So when I go into the woods, I'm trying to find things that reflect some of those deeper meanings that are, um, that are beautiful. Mainly um, I'm a sucker for beautiful things and, and that feeds into the photography. Um, and so when I go, it's not just a, my least favorite thing is to take a, a traditional trophy photo. You know, I do it because someone wants it, um, but I do it first. I make sure it's solid. And then I move on to, okay, how can we get the light off the antlers? You know, how can we get your hands holding the moss where the elk has been rubbing its, um, antlers on a tree. And and so I try and find those little moments that are all around us. Um, and I think in that observation, it, it just helps me connect. And one of the things that I hope is that my work, um, not only digitally, I think that's a, a, a limited way to share photos. Um, but when someone holds a photo book from an outing that I've been on, you know, I want them to have that whole experience. Um, I want them to see the steam coming off their coffee. I want them to see their bloody knee, you know, I want them to to smell that wind coming across the treetops. Um, and in that way, it, it allows them to reconnect in that space in a deeper way. Um, so that's my hope. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, that's really neat. And I think it's something that you know, we've talked, Andrew and I have talked quite a mm-hmm. bit about, about just that where, you know, there's, there's people just gloss over all of those moments, you know, and it just comes to you know the, the definition of of success is just put your hands on a dead turkey or, or a trout or a deer or a moose or an elk whatever whatever it is and there's all of these things there's all of these moments that you just skip over uh and and that's something that i i went through that same transition you know like five or six years ago where it's just like there's all these really cool things that i'm just walking right by you know mm-hmm. and, and you start to appreciate things and um it's definitely a process. And I, and, and I think that, I think, I don't know if that's age. I don't know if that's what that is, or if it's time in the woods, uh, success, failures, all of those things equal. What I, now, now that you've got a little perspective, which is, you know, perspective is you know uniquely human. When you look back on it, what was, what really kickstarted that change for you? What was, are you able to put your finger on? You said, you know, when you came back, like what was the driving force behind that? Personally? Mm, well, I had a, um, a perfect segue from fishing to hunting. Um, a friend of mine uh, named Carl Bottoma, shout out to Carl. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but who knows, maybe he'll hear this. Um, he took me spearfishing on the North Island of New Zealand. 
Um, and it, it was incredible. You know, it all clicked for me there because you're hiding behind reefs and you're moving slowly and you're stalking things. And, you know, we got home that night after being on the water all day and this fish that I speared, you know, fed their whole family. There's like six or seven of us sitting around a table and it was just beautiful. It was a really cool scene and a cool moment. So that really opened my eyes to the hunting world. Um, you know, beyond that, I think it's just, it, it's about going deeper each time I go out. Um, what else can I learn about that relationship that I have with nature? What, what's healthy in that space? What's unhealthy? You know, how do I, how do I take these beliefs about hunting and being in the wilderness? Um, and how do I carry forward? How do I carry them forward into my, my normal life? Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I definitely recall hearing my first Buell um, going out West as being pretty significant. Um, you know, I, Paul, I, uh, I've said this in one of my, my pieces, so forgive me, but, uh, hunting elk is not like hunting Turkey. Um, <laughs> I, uh, listening to them, is just an amazing thing. You know, the way I describe it is that, uh, the bugle is actually the living thing and the elk is just, you know, uh, uh I don't know, a body that this, this bugle is inhabiting. And so when it gets out, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, so yeah, I think a couple of those things stick out to me. Yeah, that's neat. I, I love how you're taking your experience out in the woods and really taking it to another level. Do you ever find yourself though in that moment where you're like, all right, I just got to get this, get this deer. I just want to get out get back. I've got things to do. Or is it, has it become something where every time you go out, it is, you're taking in that entire experience. So I think that that kind of folds into, you know, quote unquote, being a professional. Um, you know, when I wasn't doing this, I could doing this full time, I could pick specific things and say, Hey, today's the day I feel like doing something, um, or this one specific thing I'm going to go do. But as a professional, I have to find that joy and excitement in the daily work. Um, you know, I did a, I just photographed a, a trail run the other day and that's not a, a elk hunt, you know, out West and the mountains, right. That's, that's something that's local. And um, I certainly think there's a relationship between people and nature happening there. It, you know, it's a trail run, um, but that's a different kind of event. So I, I have to work to find that type of excitement, even though it's different from the hunting world. Um, and at the end of the day, I still have to go out and take those photos. Right. Cause I, I know personally, like there's times I'm looking at my calendar. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out that day. And if I can have a deer done by 10 o'clock then I can get back for the soccer game, whatever. And I really think that that takes out, like, I'm, I'm not going to miss time in the woods. If I have the opportunity, I'm going to try to go. But at the same time, when you start putting it into a daily calendar, a daily schedule, or you're like trying to time things up, I've found that I feel it almost ruins it right? It's not going out and just enjoying that sunrise or just taking note of the the little details around. And it's one of those things that when you have the opportunity to go out and just clear your mind and, and not put any pressure on yourself, um, it's so much more enjoyable. And I, I, after looking through some of your pictures and stuff, I mean, you are picking up on those exceptionally enjoyable moment, moments that are just you know, those are the the reason that we should be going to the woods, in my opinion, than not to try and time this up so you can make it to baseball or soccer if if you know everything, all the stars align, right? So. Yeah, well, well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, there's definitely a balance, and th there's also an idea of um, do you want to be a successful hunter? And you know, frankly, doing this, um, whether I'm hunting or with my camera, you know, I'm I'm famous for one of my first hunting outings. Um, going after deer, I had this long bow. This was like one of the first years I had gone out and, you know, no idea what I was doing with this thing. You know, now I understand traditional archery a little better. Um, but, uh, I had a, this, you know, I was overbowed. who knows what the heck my arrow weights were and anything I'm sitting by this tree. And, um, you know, I took a Kindle with me, of course, because what else am I going to do, uh, when I'm learning how to hunt. And so, uh, you know, naturally this buck comes in and he's, I mean, he's got to be 15 yards from me and I'm just sitting there, the bow's on my lap, the Kindle's in my hand. And, you know, of course I, I can't do anything, you know, I just watch. And when I, when I finally move, of course he, he left. Um, so as my, one of my hunting partners 
will tell you, you know, um, I'm definitely looking at more sunsets than finding uh, animals and putting them on the ground. So you, you have to be careful a little bit. Um, but but your story and your question, Andrew, makes me think of um, going out and turkey hunting a, a couple of weeks ago where um, we didn't get any turkey. But this guy, a friend of mine and I, you know, we had time in the blind and we talked about everything, stuff that we didn't know we were going to talk about, um, had a beautiful hike saw some cool stuff, and then we went on with our day. And so I think if you can enjoy those short moments in the woods, um, then you're really going to enjoy the long trips. For sure. So you went on a couple cool trips. Was it last year or recently, we'll say, um, kind of on both ends of the spectrum from the uh, doing some fishing down in Mexico and some elk hunting up in Idaho. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. And some of the, you know, what are the cool moments are, the challenges that go into that. Uh, let's let's talk about the Mexico fishing trip first. Yeah, you got it. Um, so this was a uh, a group of, I think it was about eight anglers um, that went down to to a lodge, and they were primarily uh, targeting permit. Um, so this lodge is uh, maybe just just on the uh, border of Belize and Mexico, so it's kind of down that way. You're going you know, you pass Tulum and all the resorts and everything, and, and you drive down there to kind of get away from everything. Um, and permit fishing is wild. Um, I have not caught a permit. Um, but on this trip, we had the whole gamut of anglers. So we had, you know, one guy who was a, a steelhead angler from Northeast Ohio, who had never done saltwater fishing. Um, and we had some people that were, um, you know, at least one professional guide was was casting and and probably I'd say three anglers that were, um, you know, as good as good of adventure anglers as you're going to find. And to, to put the permit fishing in perspective, you know, I was switching boats each day to get content of different people. And one of the days in the boat, um, we had two anglers that are fantastic you know their their cast is ideal they're putting it right where the guide is telling them to put it um and they probably put their fly perfectly in front of uh i mean don't hold me to this number but maybe 20 fish um throughout the course of the day which is a lot you know you don't often see that many fish that's um that's pretty wild and they just weren't interested you know no interest in the fly and so that's one of those cases where you can do everything right um, and just have no luck. And that's just, that's just part of the game. Um, but that was really cool. There's some, there's bonefish, uh, down there. So people had a lot of fun catching those as well. And then, um, a few people caught some baby tarpon kind of in the mangroves along the shore. Um, but, uh, I don't think they connected when I was in that boat. Um, so yeah, it was a really cool experience. And the, the saltwater angling thing is, um, a different world. Have you guys done any saltwater stuff? I, I have, but not, not like that. I mean, I fish for, you know, Barracuda and some of the other, you know, yeah. fairly, fairly easy fish to, to catch. Um, nothing like that. That's really neat. I like to fish, you know, redfish or something, you know, bonefish and those, like you said, in the mangroves, that would be, that'd be really neat to, yeah, to fish like that. So, so red, I think redfish are my favorite so far that I've, gone after. I'd love to do more of that. Uh, my brother lives in Austin, Texas. And so when I have the chance to visit him, sometimes we pop down to the, to the Gulf there. Um, but, uh, it's been a year or two. I'd like to do it again. What I just stupid question. When you say permit fishing, what, what is that? So a permit is a crazy looking saltwater fish. I, I don't really know how to describe it. Um, it so is, it's an actual uh, type of fish. It's not like it's you have to have fish, a permit. Yes. Okay. It's a type of fish, so it's um, it's silver, but almost an iridescent silver. You know, when you see it out of the water, okay. and it has this uh, very rounded shape of its body. It's you know, if you're looking at it straight on, it's extremely thin, um, but from the side, you know, it's like a, a big coin almost, and then with a very forked tail. So they're really bizarre looking, uh, but also very cool and just super picky in the way that they take take the flies i'm seeing them now i googled it so now i feel better i know it yeah aren't they they're wild looking <laughs> they are look, i like the yellow on top of their fin that's that's pretty that's pretty neat pretty cool so let's let's talk about the other the other trip that you had mentioned uh you did what an idaho an idaho elk hunt yep year. yep so um 
actually this uh the most recent one um i've done idaho a couple times um archery and then there was another one with a, a rifle hunt and um i call myself a, a an archer that doesn't mean that i uh that i kill deer or elk but um that's what i prefer but uh i, I really gotta tell you we, there was a, a a winter rifle hunt for elk which was an absolute blast um but the the hunt last year was wild because I had a surgery about a month before going on this hunt. Um, I had my gallbladder removed. So I've, uh, I've written a, a little bit about this and I, I probably will more. Um, but essentially when the doctor told me that I had gallstones, he was started laughing at me and he said that, you know, this is funny because the type of person that usually gets gallstones are middle-aged women who have had kids. And um, that's not, that's not me. So uh, after he got done kind of taking a few jobs at me, um, you know, we, I wanted to make sure to schedule the surgery before the hunt so I could have enough time to recover. And um, it was a month, you know, a few weeks out, I was walking around like some goofball, you know, taking half steps around my neighborhood trying to rehab. Um, but uh, anyway, we, I, I made it out to Idaho and this, the area that we were hunting um, was interesting. There were these massive ranches in the valleys around the river, you know, below the public land. And so what's happening is that it was still really hot and the elk were going down to feed in these fields. And that's a little different than what we were used to um, in previous seasons. So it took us a few days to find the elk. Uh, and then once we found them, we dove all the way down to a bottom pretty close to where the public land boundary was. Um, hoping that we could catch the elk coming to water. Um, so we took a midday nap down there and we, uh, we got lucky. Um, <laughs> we walked up and, you know, the guy I was hunting with um, said, don't move. And, you know, as a photographer, I have to have my priorities straight, right? Safety is number one. I'm not going to do anything with cliffs or firearms or anything that's going to put anyone in danger. Um, number two is the hunt. So a photo is not worth ruining a hunt. So when the hunter says don't move, you have to put your best white tail, hold your breath, don't blink, keep the hat down type of a, a don't move situation. Um, so all I saw was actually him, you know, raising and drawing and letting the arrow fly and, and hearing the hit. Um, and so at this point, you know, you have all this adrenaline going, we know the animal's down. And uh, I think at the time I'd complicated, I had, contemplated whether or not it was a good idea to, to, uh, pack out the elk. But at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're four miles in and you got to get the meat out. So I got to say that was the toughest pack out I've ever done. Um, it was 90 degrees the following day after we had packed out through the night, basically. Um, but pretty cool. That's a, it's a good backstrap back at camp after. Did the, uh, gallstone, uh, surgery recovery, did it affect you on the, on the pack out? Um, you know, uh, my wounds stayed closed, so I felt like that was fine. It it was more a conditioning thing, Andrew. You know, I mean, normally I go into the fall in pretty good shape and prepared to do that kind of a thing. You know, if if a hunter is walking X amount of mileage, you know, I'm walking more because I have to walk up the valley to get a photo or, you know, walk up front or behind to get different angles. Um, so I, I usually go into those in good shape, but... Um, that was not the case this year. So it was a combination of having that surgery, keeping an eye on it, but then also just not being in, in good shape. Um, so I think both those things played a role. But you came out successful and you, I'm assuming you got some of the meat. If you got, you got to do some of the work. I did. Yeah. That's a, it's a gentleman's pack out fee. There you go. A good uh, tip. Yeah. Man. You, and you good. talk about being around the hunter. So some of your pictures I saw, you know, beautiful just skyline the hunter walking over the the crest of the mountain uh stuff like that that's got to be a lot of i mean are you just planning that kind of stuff the whole time you guys are walking through the woods and because you don't want to just be stopping people and be like up oh, stand there while i take this picture right you're kind of doing it in the in the middle of everything right yeah yeah um so i try to stay and and look in photography there's there's all kinds of photographers and all kinds of styles and kinds of editing and all that. And look, as far as I'm concerned, if a photographer is making a living off of taking photos, then that's great. I, you know, go for it. 
Um, you know, for me, I try to stick to a certain level of authenticity. So um, most of it is the, the way I view it in my mind anyway, is a mix between fine art and documentary photography. So I feel like if I'm doing just documenting documentary photography, like for a newspaper, let's say, um, then I'm not really getting into that that beautiful, true side of kind of the spiritual things. But if I go too far into that, then I'm going to miss beats in that story that that person's going to want to look back on. Um, so I think about both those things. And then I also think about what I call kind of scale and scope. So um, I try and get, you know, some of the details we talked about, um, you know, the the fur on the animal or the muddy boot or whatever, um, and then photos of that hunter or angler so that you can see yourself in the photo. Uh, but I also try and get photos and the image that, that um, you mentioned of the, the elk hunter on the ridge. Um, that's one that I hope that all hunters can see themselves in. Um, so I have to think about both of those things as I'm taking those photos. So in some cases, I might ask someone to do something again right in the moment. Um, but most often, um, you know, it's I'm just capturing what's there. Are you doing any video videography where up there too, or is it just still still shots? You know, I'm not doing videography. Um, it's a pretty common question. And because I do the writing, I just feel like it's, it's too much for me to do photography, think about the things I'm going to write about, and then also do videography. Um, and so I haven't leaned into that. Um, you know, never say never. Uh, you know, I'd like to be a little more dangerous in that, um, in that regard. But, you know, as a focus, no, I'm not doing the videography. Yeah, I didn't know how much hand in hand they went or didn't go. And I mean, you see YouTube, everybody with a iPhone, can't, you know, videos their their hunts yeah. nowadays. But which is fine. Um, my only other thought when you're talking about all this elk hunt and and climbing up mountains and miles in and all this stuff, man, how much gear are you taking? Uh, well, camera gear is not light, right? <laughs> um, so I'm taking. Uh, I'm trying to think of like comparably to a hunter, you know, I don't have a weapon. So there's at least some glass that kind of evens out if they're taking a compound bow, let's say, or a rifle, then maybe a camera is about the same or maybe a little more, but, you know, I'm taking two cameras and usually three lenses um, into the field and then plus all the other normal gear. So, um, you know, if it's a day hunt, it's not a big deal, right? We're out for the day. We come back to a wall tent. Um, if we want a bivy, then you start adding in the, maybe an extra insulation layer. You got your pad, your sleeping pad, the tent, all that. Plus I'm going to have to take extra batteries. That's going to be more weight, you know, charger, that kind of a thing. Um, so the more you go, the more weight you're going to take. Um, but you know, it, it's nothing until you, until you get an elk quarter up there. So sounds like a lot. I've, I've thought about that too. Cause I get upset when I take too much stuff, the woods and, I, and I'm not going deep in like that, but yeah, I could add up quick. I could see that. So Kendrick, I saw this on your sub sack. Talk yeah. about the, uh, the hunter acceptability scale. Yeah, you got it. So um, one of the things that I think is, entertaining i'm gonna just bring this up here so i have it in front of me <clears throat> i don't miss everything so a lot of times when i talk to people about hunting um and i'm sure you guys experience this you know if they're a hunter you can talk about certain things if they're a non-hunter then the conversations are much different you know i mean i've had people ask me for example do you guys eat the turkeys or you know do does anyone ever take the bodies from the animals off the mountains? And, you know, these kind of things that to us, we, uh, well, we don't take it for granted, but, you know, we're so used to it. So that, to those ethics and that ethos um, that a lot of times those conversations, I have to back up and start very basic. So the, the hunting acceptability scale was uh, essentially a funny way to describe different conversations that I've had with people um, and which animals are socially acceptable to hunt. Um, so I did my, I did my best at it. Um, and I found one of the things I found while writing it, which is kind of interesting that there's something magical that happens when you actually do the writing, um, of different pieces. And I found that some of the most prized animals were like that because of 
the lack of supply, if you will, the rarity of being able to hunt for them. Um, and that that played in particularly with people who aren't as familiar with the hunting space that because not everyone hunts it, even though it's, it might be very similar to a white-tailed deer, it has a different uh, feel in the non-hunting community. Um, so yeah, I, I did my best to try and uh, lay some of that stuff out in a fun way. Yeah, and that's something Paul and I have talked about, I think kind of off air, but getting people to accept it is is important. And uh, my wife actually took some venison summer sausage in for a company party not too long ago. And she said how they were all raving about it, how great it was. And I was just like, just nice. make sure they support hunting. That's <laughs> part of the, the, you know, it's enjoyment for us. It's a hobby and stuff, but there is a benefit. Like if you like the, that kind of stuff, um, you know, make sure you, you keep that in mind. And, and when the yeah. time comes, it, you're supportive. So. There's we just uh, just recently there's there's a group and, and you might have seen this, but they, they do a, a research project every couple of years or every year where they uh, this group will pull non hunters uh, throughout the country. They'll do you know focus groups and research studies and, and all of these things. And it's it's basically just that it's it's the hunting acceptability from non-hunters and just kind of the perception the approval rating if you will of of hunting and so there's the newest i don't know if you've seen this uh 2020 it was 80 84 of of non-hunters approved of legal hunting activities in the in the u.s so we're down below uh, right at 80 or just below you know, the high you know high 79 percent of people approved so you know, we, we hear, oh, it's just 4%. Well, in three years, it's 13 million people have changed their perception of hunting negatively in this, in this country. And that's, that's a staggering number when, when, when you think about um, just a three-year period. And if that's a trend, if that's, and that's where some of the, some of the data, some of the research and Andrew and I've talked about this off, off the show, but some of it is, is kind of, it's very, um <clears throat> it's alarming and it's concerning for, for a lot of people. And, and I think that, you said talking about you know the story of of hunting and why we do it is is a very important part of that to you know keeping people because it is real it's a real thing i mean we, we can just say oh i don't care you know you never apologize for what we do but we need to we need to do the best we can to to one do it uh you know in, in a good light and like project it in a good light to other people i think so and i think his, the photography side of it as well because it's not just gripping grins and it's not you know blood and and you know that kind of stuff there's so much more happening out in the woods that uh really comes from hunting and any anybody who's been at it for a long long enough time knows i should say most people we don't speak in definites do we paul um <laughs> that learn most, that the hard way. a lot of times you go out in the woods and you don't get anything right yeah. and that's why they call it hunting and not killing like because it just is not always you know this bloodbath out there it's 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 everything that that Kendrick puts in his pictures um and his photography sorry out that is you know more than just the actual letting the arrow go so yeah I, I think you guys are right and I, I think the storytelling is important um you know one of the things I do particularly around uh you know fishing is that look if everyone wanted to hunt and fish like me who knows what the harvest numbers would be? They'd be very low. Okay. I mean, there would be beautiful casts and wonderful views, but there wouldn't be very many animals uh, down or in the net. Um, so particularly when I'm doing fishing photography, it, it's not my place to kind of push my angling outlook and, and how to handle fish and all that um, while I'm working in that space. Um, now, if there's an opportunity, certainly I, I, I would like to say, hey, let's try and just do a photo of the fish in the water with you tailing it and we don't need to do hold it up for a minute. Um, you know, I always try and have a rule of thumb where if there's water coming off the fish. That's OK. But if uh, once there's no more drips, the photo's not as cool. So we might as well get it back in the water anyway. Um, but I was working with a guide up here in the fall who was hosting a, a steelhead clinic. And um, he was really um, embodying that ethos of conservation. And, and with fishing, of course, the catch and release is a, a different a different angle on that. Um, but I just really admired him kind of working with that group and explaining to them the reasons why he was doing certain things with those steelhead and why it was important for the population dynamics. Um, you know, I 
I think with the hunting community, unfortunately, the early days of social media were not good for us. Um, I, I don't think we handled ourselves well as a community. Um, and, and I think because we missed the whole story, you know, if you guys text me a photo of your, your turkey or your deer, like the first thing I, I'm going to ask is like, well, what's the story? You know, I mean, I, I mean, hey, great animal, but like, tell me the story. Um, but if you're not a hunter and you see that, your first response is like, the, you're not thinking about a story, whatever the response is. Um, and so I hope that some of this, these visual images that carry a, a different feeling with them can help people think through that, um, particularly to an audience that isn't used to it. One of the things that we talk about up here in Northeast Ohio um, is that we really want to promote our hunting and fishing in a way that's on par to these destination places out West. So, you know, if you think about beautiful hunting catalogs and um, maybe lodge websites and things like that, um, the really nice high-end ones that are driving those trends and that are really building economies around their hunting and fishing communities are doing it at a high, beautiful level. And, you know, I think sometimes in Ohio, we're, we're spoiled in the sense of having incredible day, day hunts and day fishing trips. I mean, deer, turkey, steelhead, walleye, perch. Um, I mean, there's some, the waterfall, waterfowl, excuse me, as well. Um, so there's so much to do during one day that sometimes I think, at least I know I've done this, um, that I approach it more casually and I just think, oh, hey, I'm just going out for the day. But in reality, I want to develop the same reverence for these outings here that we have in Ohio as I do when I go to destination hunts. Um, and I think that by presenting our region and our state in that way, people are going to look and say, not only, oh, is that a cool fishery or that's a great place to hunt, but the people actually revere and love and care for this resource. And I, I think whether people realize that directly or not, I think they feel it. I think they feel a difference. I agree. It's good. We yeah, just did our. We just had our wall. Like we had our walleye trip a couple of weeks ago. Nice. And it was. It was a great day and uh, very productive, and it was good. So. Yeah, that's great. It's still my favorite fish. Yeah. To eat. So. Yeah, for sure. I don't release walleye. So, Kendrick, I, I have I have one last question. Andrew, if you have any more, feel free to jump in. Kendrick, if you want to add anything. So when 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 the when the moment of truth comes for a hunter. Uh, are you getting those same nerves? Like when you're just watching them, you got that camera in the hand. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the adrenaline flowing. I mean, is it just, are you, are you like just honed in like, okay, my moment. I, and so like, what do you, what, what do you, if I'm pulling back on a, on an elk, are you taking a picture of me? Or are you taking a picture of the elk? Or, I mean, if you've got the option, are you just whatever you can get for that moment safely right. is it? No, I mean, so that's a conversation I want to have with the hunter, first of all, um, because I, I mean, the the dream shot for a lot of people is the over the shoulder shot where, you know, the hunters in the foreground and the animals in the background. But um, man, that uh, things really have to line up for that. Um, so I typically like to ask the hunter, like, hey, do you have a preference in this situation? Um, and or it's dealer's choice. And I just I take what I can without messing up that moment. Um, but to answer your question about what do I feel like, I, I don't think there's anything that compares to having a weapon in your hand in the woods. I mean, there's just something you can walk in the woods and having the same encounter. But if you have that intent and the weapon in your hand, it's it's different. Um, I, and, you know, you know the difference. Um, but with the camera, it's it's pretty dang close. Um, I mean, I want you to have a successful hunt as much as I want to have a successful hunt. Um, because I know that you're going to connect through that, that outing um, in a special way. So uh, yes, um, from a, a personal standpoint, there's that hope, but then also from a professional standpoint, uh, you know, I have to deliver on the photos in that moment. Um, so I want to try and be ready as much as possible because as you know, uh, sometimes the animals come when you least expect it. For sure. Months, you got anything? Oh, I think that's good. I mean, uh, Kendrick, where can people find you? Um, I know you sent us some stuff, and I'll put those in the notes. Um, but where are you, Instagram or your website, any of that kind of stuff? 
Sure. Yeah. So I'm not on Instagram, uh, but I, my website is dkendrickc.com. Um, and then my Substack, which I call a field notes, uh, where you can get signed up to have my writing, you know, my perspective, my fiction and my photography, both essays and new releases is dkendrickc.substack.com. Um, and there's a link to that on my regular site too. Um, so those are the best way to reach out to me. Um, love to grab a coffee and talk conservation or hunting fishing. Um, so feel free to reach out and uh, we can talk a bit more. And if people want to book you for their hunts, they can do that on there as well. Yep. They can drop me a note um, because hunting, the hunting world has so many different things. Basically all my quotes are, are custom with the exception of maybe some local stuff. Um, so yeah, they, they have to reach out to me directly. Very cool. Kendrick, thanks for your time, man. Keep up the good work. Yeah. I appreciate it guys. Um, thanks so much. And, uh, I hope to hear more from you. Thanks, Kendrick.